0: You're listening to The Ecopreneur Show, a podcast that inspires entrepreneurs and creatives on how they can make a positive and meaningful impact in the world. I'm your host, Vanina. Every other week, I hang out with entrepreneurs, business owners, and leaders that are creating real-life solutions for a more sustainable future. I feel by having raw conversations with ecopreneurs that I'll keep on inspiring us to take action in our own lives. Thanks for tuning in. So Brian, thank you so much for being here. Sure. Um, can you tell me a little bit about what you do?
1: Yes, uh, I'm a Lean Six Sigma consultant, which a lot of people have no idea what that means. And so um, it's a process improvement methodology that's come up over the last couple of decades. Uh, so a lot of large companies and corporations uh, use this to make their processes better, and improve their quality, reduce the time it takes to do tasks, um, better aligned to what their customers actually want, and try to also engage their employees in making improvements to their work so it's less frustrating or uh, difficult, um, and they can do the job easier, safer, um, and also more productive. Um, What's a little different is, is the perception is that people think that it's about making people work faster or harder, and if you t- if you actually set up the processes correctly, it doesn't have to be that way. You can make it simpler and easier, and they can do more work without more effort necessarily. Um, and then there's elements of that that are, get into the data, and my background is in statistics, and that's how I kind of got into data analysis. And then I, out of school, I started working at an aerospace company that was nearby. And I grew up in Iowa, so I got a job nearby. And that's kind of started into applying what I learned in school.
0: And then can you tell them, uh, a little bit about recycling advocates too?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I moved to Portland in 2013 with my wife. And we uh, and I really wanted to get to the Pacific Northwest. Um, so Any company, particular
0: reason why? for
1: I, The sustainability part, for sure. So probably um, when I met my wife in 2007, uh, she had some background in the environmental world and I was just getting into it. I think this is a year year after An Inconvenient Truth came out, right? And so that exposed me to this problem of climate change and what's going on here. Uh, And so I was kind of digesting what that meant and making some small changes here and there. But uh, then I started to make a connection between what I do at work and this environmental problem. And a, like a light bulb went off that, wait, I can, I think I can help with this. This is a, a problem with numbers, right? And you just follow the data and that will help make decisions around where I can best impact the environment, how I can help. And so I spent a lot of time just studying and learning more about it because I didn't feel like I was very educated around that. And I decided I should probably get some more education. So I actually went back to school and got a certificate in sustainability from the school that I got my undergrad and graduate program right. through.
0: Because previously you were working as an aerospace engineer, from what I understand? I was
1: working, yeah, in the aerospace industry, uh, doing process improvement work. So I was helping the organization, you know, I was teaching statistics, basically, or refreshing engineers on what they learned in school, but trying to apply it to here's an actual problem we're dealing with. Here's how you can apply some of these concepts that maybe it's new to them or maybe it's something they took in class, but they haven't applied in their real job. I was there to kind of support them and train them and teach them those concepts.
0: And so then you went back to school. And then um, can you explain exactly what you went to school for and what certification you Yeah, um, it was just
1: sustainability. And that was a general... Topic And it was a certificate program. So there's no, it wasn't an undergrad or a minor or anything like that. I was one of the few people who are working full time. It was mostly students. Uh, so that was uh, a good, interesting experience to kind of get reconnected yeah, sure. with uh, <laughs> the current college students. This is back in 20, 2011, 2012, somewhere around there. So uh, so I got more educated and I felt more confident in what I was doing. And I, and I got more Excited about the possibilities because I kept, you know, talking to people, professors, and other groups, and connecting with people. And there was a, a still a gap there. I found that the EPA had done some work with my background lean six sigma work and how to uh, improve the environment. And I found all these resources that they put out. So I just digested all of that information and saw that there are companies that had already started to go down this path of connecting their environmental impacts and using these techniques to improve that. So Anyway, so I got excited about that possibility Then I wanted to move somewhere where there was a lot of good activity happening. And mm. of course, Portland's on the list and the company I was working for, uh, Rockwell Collins had a facility in Wilsonville. So that and seemed pretty And what was that cool. company,
0: Rockwell Collins? Was that the, the, the aerospace? aerospace company? Okay, gotcha.
1: Yep. So I moved around uh, uh, every five years or so okay. to different locations and that kind of broke up my 18 years. I made it go a little faster than, wow.
0: which is a long time yeah. to be at a
1: company, but when it I look at it, it was broken up every four to seven years with a different location. How
0: did you know when to make that sort of transition working 18 years in this industry and then um, watching Inconvenient Truth and realize that you had sort of a similar calling, you know, um, but different? So how did you you make that leap?
1: Yeah, I think when I realized that... um, that there was there was a way to apply what i was doing in business and also help the businesses reduce their environmental impact just huge knowing that my background kind of lined up really well with that i got okay. super excited about it and then realizing that outside of the epa documents that they put out there really was not much going on and there weren't there were many people like myself doing that work so i said okay there's some positive things there that I can do. And there's not that many people doing it yet. That got me really excited about that possibility. So I did some internal projects at the company and got some great successes there, but after a while, I just kind of realized that I was ready to go faster. Um, and there was a lot of knowledge that I wanted to share of things I've gathered and collected. And, um, there's a lot more companies out there that need that exposure or that training, and I can't do that working full time. started to kind of work my way towards uh, my own consulting.
0: Yeah. Okay. So can you explain that? So you started doing your own consulting work. So um, did you reach out to other companies saying that, you know, I I have the certification, I, there's ways that I can help you improve your company. Is that kind of how you go about it or?
1: Probably started doing some stuff online, just posting information, um, putting together training material, free stuff, uh writing articles stuff like that to get the word out and just to see if there's momentum or um interest in that topic. And there's a little bit here and there. Um but I really felt like I had to go spend a little bit more significant time. Um so I actually and we're going to get to recycling advocates here. <laughs> uh, it's a longer route here, but um I realized that I started I need to start spending time outside of work to do that. And I was doing that and I was spending most of my weekends and nights working on these, but still wasn't really enough to get mo- enough momentum there where I could go on my own. So I started cutting back hours at work, went to 30 hours for about six months. And then, um, I found some, an organization I could partner with for some consulting work. They had some steady work for me to do some training. And that was enough to say, I'm ready to take that leap. Um, so that helped a lot. And then since then that gave me time to kind of start building up my client list people I want to work with. But, um, uh, it's long uh, it's taking longer because this is new stuff for the pe- for the groups I'm working with and trying to connect with. Large companies know about lean and six sigma methods, but most of the sustainable businesses and nonprofits, this is new. So I'm doing a lot of education and explaining what exactly do I do and how, how can I help them in some way.
0: Yeah, can you like can you walk me through like how does how does the consultancy process work?
1: Yeah, it's um usually it starts with um, an intro class or training because I usually like to at least get them on a, a clear understanding of what these concepts are and then maybe give them some thoughts around how I could start working together. Usually it's an introduction to the lean methods, those are a little less uh, data focused. There is a lot of data, but it's not quite as intense as the Six Sigma side of it. So um, usually start with that and talk about workflow and employee engagement and then just talk about the types of problems they have, which is you know, there's they're not able to keep up with orders that they have or requests from their customers, because this could be a, an office process. It could be electronic. Um, it doesn't matter what the business is doing, but most everybody has an end customer or a recipient of their products or services that they offer. And that product and service takes cer- certain amount of time to complete internally and sometimes it takes longer than they want it to take and it's not as fast as the customers want it or there's quality issues that they don't get the customer doesn't get what they want so whatever the problem is if it's too slow or not good enough quality or it costs too much or it's too environmentally damaging Mm -hmm. the process whatever the issue is um the methodology methodology i teach is just about let's work through that problem to Mm -hmm. some structured way of solving it so the training is just to kind of introduce them to some of the concepts and tools and how we will solve some of those problems and teach people how to solve it themselves eventually. Um, but the typical day for me is all over the place. It could be I'm um, teaching a class for four or five days in a row. Uh, could be um, at a at a conference room hotel uh, for the general public through the other consultancy. It could be me meeting with a client and working through a specific problem. could just be meeting with the client to talk about strategy and plans. It could be uh, me working on some data analysis and sending it to them. Uh, I'll review other people's projects and certify them to the Lean or Six Sigma criteria. So it could be phone calls with somebody, walking them through their next steps on their project improvement that they're doing. Um, So it varies a lot each day, which is pretty that's nice awesome. yeah yeah and sometimes i have to remind them like can you remind me where we left off because you're just wearing so many
0: th- different hats all the time i just
1: yeah i've talked to 10 different people in the last couple of days can't remember what we talked about two weeks ago so. gotcha. <laughs>
0: you need like a refresher yeah you're so, with so just, many different companies and then it
1: comes back to me in a couple minutes but uh so, but that's nice that you get a lot of flexibility and unique things
0: so since we're talking about a little bit about um uh kind of like the companies that you worked with. Um there's one particular question that I was looking for. Let's see. Um
1: I can tie uh, back the recycling advocates oh, while yes. you're working on that too. So. Yes. <laughs> yes, go ahead. Go ahead. Um so when I was uh when I was working at the aerospace company, I was running the green team. And so I was trying to get us a group of employees together to start talking through and saying what can we do to help with, uh, environmental projects in the company. And so I found some people who were interested in that and set up a monthly meeting and we just get together. Uh, the city of Portland has the sustainability at work program. And yes. then we were in Clackamas County in Wilsonville. And so the local, um, counties had a, a similar program. So we took the checklist and started going through that checklist with some help with the Clackamas County, uh, solid waste advisor. And so that process really helped us kind of get a jump start in some momentum at that facility so we got through and got to their gold level certification with the business and um but i made a lot of great connections there um recycling advocates at the time betty patton was the president and she had set up a meeting to talk about green teams mm-hmm. and i'm like cool i want to network with other green team people cuz i don't i feel like i'm on, on an island by myself so i met her and then Long story short, started coming to meetings, joined the board uh, shortly after that.
0: And then became president. Yeah. And then Betty retired
1: and she kind of um, asked if I could take over. And I just had started the consulting. So I said, you know, actually, i got a little flexibility with my work schedule now. Um, Although I am starting a new business, I I don't know how effective I'll be, but I'll I'll give it a shot. I don't know what I'm doing. If you'll help me and help navigate me through this, um, I'll, I'll give it a try.
0: And can you explain to people what recycle uh, recycling advocates does exactly in Portland?
1: So they've been around since 1989 over 30 years now um, set up by Jean Roy um, and so she's done amazing things throughout the community uh, setting up different nonprofit organizations um, And so initially it was at that time there really was not a lot of recycling options and so it was uh, an organization to give a voice to local citizens to, Be able to advocate for better recycling options in the community and so from there um, there's some history and connection back to the master recycler program i think they were um, involved in helping develop some of the curriculum for that program Uh, but over the years the system has changed a lot for the better and gotten really good and so um, i mean there's still opportunities and things that need to be improved we we all know that Uh, but so so um, when I took over, I was trying to figure out where, where do we go from here? So we tried a couple of things. We did the zero waste conference last year.
0: Which was wildly successful. Yeah,
1: it was yeah. great. And, um, hope to do another one soon. That would be great. And, uh, just trying to figure out, you know, what is the, the current needs in the community and where do we fit in as an organization to provide a voice?
0: Yeah. And you're also pushing for the, you know, bring your own cup too. Can you yes. talk about that?
1: Yeah, so that was when I joined, they were just starting to talk about the next campaign. And so they talked about some things around uh, to-go containers, and but also um, GoBox had been in place as well. So, you know, how do we work together with them, but not... We kind of stepped back and, and we kept coming back to coffee cups a lot. And because it's, you know, Portlanders love coffee, and oh, yes. the confusion around the coffee cup was more and more evident as people said, this looks like paper and I'm going to throw it in my recycling bin. So the contamination aspect of it was huge. And then we started getting some rough numbers and that's where we came up with this 50 million cups a year in Portland, get consumed and thrown away for a single use item. And it's...
0: Yeah. When Jocelyn mentioned that in uh, the GoBox interview, I was stunned by that. Yeah. And that's
1: a... A, a rough number we came up with it's probably way more than that wow but we knew at least that number we can feel pretty comfortable with probably upwards of a hundred 100 million cups so yeah that that kind of we all kind of nodded and said yeah this is something we can go deal with it's it's two levels it's you know why are we doing that there are options you don't have to use a disposable cup and the contamination and so there's a two-pronged approach is to educate the coffee customers and the coffee shops and then also the public about if you do have to have a cup, where does it go? And it goes in the trash.
0: Um, since Yeah, since we're talking about kind of like with people and since you're kind of in both sort of fields, um, where do you feel like is the driver of change? Do you feel like it's with the, with the government or do you feel like it's with the people?
1: I th- I've over the years changed and I think it's the people. We all every day make choices and decisions that drive the businesses. Ultimately they're they're responding to us. So if we like convenience and single-use items, they're going to produce that. And they might drive it initially, but it's up to us to decide not to to choose those options. Um so I think What made
0: you change? You said it's different now. So can yeah, you explain that? I think
1: at first I was thinking that the government needed to step in and and regulate this these items or incentivize or make rules against it and there's a a place for that um um, but ultimately as i kind of even assess my own buying decisions and purchasing uh, i think it kind of stood out like is this really where i want to be spending my own money um and if i'm not supporting the businesses that i that i like uh I'm not sending them the clear signal that they need in our society. If you're going based on the businesses are going to provide what the customers want. And so if they want convenience and single use, um, and the customers keep buying those things, you're telling the business that that's what you like and they're going to keep doing what you like. So, um, ultimately what, while you're seeing, I think a change in, in how businesses are reacting and some of the new businesses coming up that are being successful, is they're responding and people are supporting those businesses. And if without that, they can't make it. So ultimately, I think it comes back to the individuals. Um, We vote for the people we want in our offices, the decisions at the government level, and we spend our money every day and every dollar is a vote for that, that business. And so I really think it is come back to uh, we as individuals have to make that decision every day. And sometimes it's hard because, uh the best option is inconvenient to get to and it costs more money sometimes um but it's really you have to be uh you know really committed to say this is really important to me and it's worth it and i know this is helping in some way down the line it's going to make a difference it's going to help this business last a little bit longer and get enough time in there to get the exposure they need for it to take off
0: yeah i mean i i i'm i'm also about the individual too i think that um, one of the biggest examples I always kind of lead with is that as the organic food movement, I feel like that really started with the people. You know, it was just people just asking for organic food. And now it's just it's the common norm. You know, now businesses are like, oh, crud, like we got to start <laughs> making organic food produce if we want to survive and so now you see organic everywhere and you know like first it was just like in your like little grocery stores and I remember just seeing it from time to time but now it's just like it's the common norm so I think that's a great example of that too and I think it's really cool um also talking about the plastic too like I think people are becoming more aware that it's also affecting our bodies too with all the plastic that we are um you know pouring hot coffee into our cups and, uh, package things too, and how it affects us in the long term. Um, so I, I'm, I'm all about the individual. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of want to go back a little bit. Um, there's a specific question that I actually have for, um, your consultancy. Um, what are the common areas of improvement that you see in businesses that you consult soul with?
1: You know, I would say that there are some, I call it easy things that sometimes they just needed to focus some attention on a problem and the solution isn't that difficult or challenging. Like they kind of have some ideas already. They just need to, to sit down and focus their attention on it. It's easy to get wrapped up in the day-to-day activities and it's hard to step out and spend time fixing the process when you're in it all the time. And it's a challenge and you just want to get through the day. So one big challenge is actually carving out time for businesses to make improvements. In their work Um, and once they do that the solutions are not difficult to do it's probably they have some great ideas already they just haven't really spent the time to go step away and work on it that's one thing i kind of encourage is let's carve out some time each day or each week for your team to step back look at what's going on and, and really rethink is this the best way we can do this is there ways i can simplify this or uh, some case automate, but that's not always the best option. I'd rather them make the process simpler and easier, and then later you can automate it. Sometimes they just automate a bad process. That's that doesn't really fix it. So that's one piece, that's and a, then the, the other one is very. Oh, sorry.
0: No, I just think that's a really uh, that's a really interesting exa- or like example. I've never heard of that. Just carving out time to just reassess and look at the whole picture then, cause I agree, I think sometimes we can just get so stuck in the day to day and think, you know, I need to do this, I need to be busy, I need to like, you know, but by taking steps back and reassessing with your team is really valuable in itself. So.
1: There's a natural reaction to be afraid or fear problems and talking about problems. And that's one of the big elements on the lean methodology is that you have to be comfortable bringing up and talking about problems. Otherwise, you'll never be able to solve them if yeah. you can't honestly talk about it and without fear that you cannot fear like I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get fired or get written up because I brought up this issue. It's we have to be very transparent and be able to say, lay all the problems on the table. And so we can actually see which ones we have to deal with. Um, If I only talk about half the problems, the other ones are buried and hidden. I'm not getting a full picture and I'm not working on the right stuff potentially. So first thing is trying to get people to just bring forward all the problems and lay them all out. And that's difficult for some organizations that are, we we were talking offline earlier uh, about uh, are people comfortable talking about issues and problems? Um, right. So that's the first barrier there um, is to make it okay to, to bring up those problems. Then once you have time to go work on those problems, you can start chipping away at those. But the problems never go away. Com- uh, the prob- Individual problems go away if you fix them correctly. Uh, but problems in general are always going to be there. You will never, you take the best running organization and you will go in there and within an hour, you will find hundreds of problems and things they need to fix. So once you get in the mindset that problems are just things we have to deal with all, all the time and they're never going to go away completely, there's just be new problems and new challenges that come up. So let's get used to the fact that we're going to have problems all the time. It's just picking the right ones to work on mm-hmm. and then actually spending time working on those problems and getting out of the day-to-day chaos and firefighting that we're used to, to, to chip away at those problems.
0: I think it's so interesting that you talk about being able to put your problems like in the forefront, you know, and being able to kind of like accept them. Because I think about, um, like the company Tom's, um, yeah. when, um, they got a lot of flack for, um, they're because they're all about uh, giving a shoe to um, a child in need um, and what happened was um, they started more like they got a lot of flack because uh, cobblers were losing their jobs mm-hmm. and in the city uh, in the villages that they were in because people were like well I don't need to hire a cobbler I can get a free shoe over here mm-hmm. and I think that I mean I think Toms did the, the best way that they could which is understanding the problem, accepting the problem, and then being like, okay, what can we do as a company? And so they started building uh, factories there and actually hiring the cobblers to work with them. Um, But I think that, I think this is just an interesting topic because I feel like, especially in the sustainability world, I feel like sometimes it's, it's like, either you're right or you're wrong a lot of the time. You know, it's always like, you know, how do we how do we find those missing holes that people are, you know, like, yeah, your company's great, but you're not doing X, Y, and Z. Or yes, you're zero waste, but you're not vegan. Or, you know, trying to like nitpick at all the little problems for that. And I think the same is with companies too. You know, I think people are just afraid to even say if there's something a little bit off about their company. Like, yes, like they want to be perceived as the best company possible, but I think that's sort of, fear of, you know, showing problems is a real thing. And yeah, I just think it's really interesting that you're discussing that, um, for a company that that's one of their biggest issues. Mm -hmm.
1: I think that's, it's, it prevents people dealing with the real issues that are going on. And, um, so, so once they can start kind of laying those problems out, which is difficult, um, And there's cultures that have been built up that, um, you know, that's a bad thing. If you have problems and you're not doing your job correctly and and we don't trust you anymore. But uh, it's really about how you deal with the problems. This should be more important. And how do you bring your team along with you? And this is it can't be that one person is fixing everything because you've just taken on all that weight on your shoulder as a manager or a supervisor of that area. If you are the ones trying to fix everything. Um, you have a whole team of people that can also fix problems. You just got to trust them, give them the the ability to learn how to do it right. And that's what I try to teach is techniques to solve problems. Um, but it takes time to practice that and you have to be okay with, you know, sometimes our solutions don't work and that's a learning experience and we're not going to be perfect at first, but we're going to practice this. And eventually over a couple of years, we're going to get really good at this and then we'll be able to solve any problem that comes our way. So once they do start working on the improvements, uh, I'd say half the time, it's pretty straightforward what they need to do, They've, they already know, they just haven't spent the time doing it. The other piece is there are some techniques and some analysis that can help them solve problems that they haven't been able to solve more challenging things, how they do their work, uh, whether it's a batch or small, smaller batches or one at a time makes a difference in how fast it can go and how much backlog you have in your process. So there are some technical things that I teach that people don't think about or are confused about until they see it in in, in action. And then they're kind of blown away by, they they thought they were doing it a really efficient way. And I kind of show them that there's better ways to do things, different tasks.
0: Yeah. What are your thoughts on companies that do um, made to order? Meaning that, you know, when somebody, a company, more like a, um, a customer decides to buy a t-shirt, they specifically make that t-shirt for that.
1: That's great. Yeah. I think you, you you tie it to, we don't have to predict what the customer wants. We wait for the customer to tell you what, it want, what they want. And that's a, called a pull system. A push system is... Let's forecast and guess at how many shirts and pants and hats we need to make or how many vehicles we need to make or how many um, you name whatever the product is. And let's guess and we'll make a bunch of these and ship them all around and hope that that meets the demands. Uh, The problem is you're not going to get that right. And so you're going to make too many of certain things and you'll have to discount them, or you're going to not make enough and you're going to run out. And so it gets very difficult to try to predict those things. So it's better to set up a process that is very responsive to the actual customer's demands. So a poll system would be like, let's put out two shirts, two large shirts on the showroom floor. And then when somebody orders one large one, We send a signal back to the supplier that's on your next delivery. Please send us one more large. And so you buy one and then you replenish one. And that would be instead of saying we're going to ship you 300 and then we hope that that covers you. You set things up in smaller orders and very responsive. And if nobody orders a large shirt, it sits there. But no other shipments come in because there's no signal back to the supplier that anyone's buying it. And so it's very responsive and flexible. Uh, but so that's, I think, as ideal as you only make what the customer wants uh, or provide that service when they ask for it directly, not spending time hoping that they might need it. Find out I wasted all that time. I could have been doing something else or making something else or not having to figure out how to get rid of all these excess items that nobody wanted
0: sitting there. And yeah, I mean, I, I relate to that. I mean, as somebody who's worked in the fashion industry, i relate to that all too well where you, you know, have an idea, you think, you know, what you, what you want to make for the customer and then once it's out there and some people, you know, of course, sometimes you get traction, but sometimes you don't. And then there's just inventory sitting there too. I mean, that was the big one for me when I was, um, uh, I used to be a fashion designer and made it all in California. I was so, um, I, Sewed so it all myself, um, and you know, it was as sustainable as I could. But if it didn't sell, then it would just sit there. You know, it would sit in inventory, and I thought, well, what's the point? You know, if somebody's not wearing this and it's not going anywhere, mm-hmm. like, what's what's the purpose of that all? I didn't know that there was two. That the, those are two different methods of. You said pull. And, pull and a push. Pull and a push. Yeah, well, and is push that, is, is
1: here. You go take what we're going to give you. Pull well. is you tell me what you need at the right time. Um,
0: and do you feel like Pull that's- is harder
1: to do, and that's why it's easier to, and sometimes we're incentivized to do the push because, hey, you need to buy 100 of these to get the price discount right. you want. And it sounds good, and that's why people bulk buy. Oh, look, I can get this price per, you know, I can buy three dozen bananas for uh, and save 20%. But if I end up having to discard or compost 10, 20% of those, did I actually save money? And then I had to store all those bananas in one spot, and now I have need more space, and so it creates uh, some short-term incentives to do the push or the batch work. And right. the long term is uh, actually go to smaller amounts, but you may end up saving money in the long run when you actually do the numbers.
0: But you're saying that pull is more is more difficult for a business. Um, yeah,
1: you have to have your processes dialed in really well to be that responsive and flexible to respond like your customer demands change. So uh, yeah, it's a maturity thing to get to that point. Um, But usually it's much more uh, cost effective in the long run.
0: Yeah. Can we talk a little about that? Um, I feel like I hear for so many businesses um, that let's say aren't as sustainable say, you know, I'd love to do that, but it's more expensive or, you know, um, we don't have the budget for that. Or can you like, can you debunk that a bit? Mm
1: Um, I, well, I think there's, them. yeah, let's, uh, I don't know if I'll be able to solve that, yeah. but, um, so part of it is that the, the way they're looking at the numbers could be skewed. They're looking at purely financial numbers and our financial system isn't, doesn't account for environmental impact very well. I'd love to see that change someday so that, cause I think the businesses would actually fall in line perfectly if you had the incentives financially for any impact they have negatively to the planet, whether it's a carbon tax or something like that. The businesses are making a lot of financial decisions. Um, they're not always looking at the triple bottom line, however, and so are they really incorporating the environmental impact and the, the impact to their workers in the community in those decisions? Yeah. Kind of like the Tom's example you gave. Yeah. Maybe financially that made sense that they could lower the cost of the shoes in the method they chose, but that they, Calculate or impact the effect on the community and the cobblers and the uh, the local residents and what that would do. Uh, Maybe they tried and they didn't, they underestimated the impact that it would have. Um, So, first is uh, most companies still operate in just looking at the the profit and loss piece of it and not incorporating uh, a broader view. Um, And partly because it's hard to get those numbers, it's hard to balance a a clear financial numbers with this kind of vague environmental impact like how much does it cost to use you know 200,000 extra kilowatt hours you get you get charged for it but you're not paying for the environmental impacts that it goes with that as well if that was factored in they could make better financial decisions that way so 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 one i think that we're always going we're always going to be battling this when there's a the externality costs are not being factored in mm. to business decisions so i'd like to see that improved. I um, don't know if that will happen anytime soon.
0: Yeah, I was about to say, so do you do you see that being something that the government would kind of incentivize or what?
1: Yeah, I think it's going to have to be that because um, the companies are not going to voluntarily, uh, some, some do, but the majority of the companies probably having the biggest impact are not going to voluntarily say, we're going to add costs to our expenses to factor in these externalities so it's, i think it's going to have to be pushed from the government side to them to say this is how it's going to be so that we can properly if you're res- if you're responsible for this you need to pay for it the, you know polluter pays model is really what we're trying to say it's not you can do what you want but you, you're going to pay for the full impact of your decisions not some of the impact and then someone and then society is going to cover the rest of the bill which is what's happening today with you know, the use of coal and who's paying for the asthma treatments for the kids who live near there. That is the piece that's missing today in the business models. And so some way to factor that into the decision that says, this is going to cost us more. And now I can make a better trade-off because I am paying for those externalities. But so I can't remember where we're going, but uh, I
0: guess, yeah, I think the financial
1: problem is a, is a, a challenge. Good companies are Factoring that in as best as they can, um, but yeah, it's a lot the financials are very clear. The other stuff is vague and the impact in healthcare to the community and the environmental damage it's causing. It's Those numbers are not as clear and hard and so they kind of, the companies I think revert back to what does the profit and loss say and they make decisions that way.
0: I'm just digesting that a little bit. Um... You know, I think it's just a question that I—I I don't think maybe we can can answer during this episode. For me, I think about you know, like, yes, it does affect a large company. It does affect their the kids' health or something like that too. But some companies might just be like, so what? For me, of course, like that—that doesn't—that doesn't relate to me at all. But I think some companies can be like, yes, that's that's bad. But what can I do with my company? To do that, and how does that benefit me as a company? Well,
1: I think the, you know. It, each company, though, is made up of individuals, and many of us have worked in big companies, and we felt like, "What can I do?" But but we can influence, and and we can ask those questions in there. Uh, but I think sometimes it feels like the the machine of the, you know, especially like a company that is a for profit, that it has um, a publicly held company that has quarterly statements that they have to make finance. They're in there. The questions aren't being asked about. Okay, that's great. Let's look at your financial statements. Now let's talk about your social responsibility. That's not part of their quarterly calls, and that's not part of the uh, what they're being held to. And yeah. that doesn't affect their stock price. Uh, but if those things were being discussed and said, okay, we're gonna. Uh, decide to invest in you based on your triple bottom line approach, not just your financial impact, that would change things. And I've seen some good progress with investor groups that said, we're not going to invest in companies who don't have a social responsibility report and are serious about that. Like BlackRock has already said, we are moving in a direction that uh, we're not just looking at profit and loss because we know that's not a good indicator for long-term health of a company. So when those things start changing, that will help some of the bigger companies say, this is what the investor group wants us to do, and now it's important to the company to consider those things. But today, it's still so much focused on the financials. Um, we don't measure the, the the big impact. We look at the gross domestic product, which mm-hmm. is a measure of finances. Um, it doesn't incorporate the full picture. Like uh, the example just blew me away. I think it was in the Master Recycler class that. You know, a, a woman who takes her child to the library produces nothing for the GDP, but an oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico produces millions of dollars in GDP growth for someone who had to pay to clean up the oil spill. And that's looked at as more positive than somebody who's staying at home, taking care of their child and going to the library and using the free resources there. And that just like that, we can't be making decisions about the health of our economy based on a number that is flawed and misrepresents, I think what people would value in our society. So that's a whole nother topic, wow, but that's no
0: that's, I, I'm, I'm processing. I'm processing that. Um, so, so I,
1: so I got into consulting because I wanted to work with businesses where I didn't have to, that, that wasn't even on the table. We would make, they would be interested in making choices that were for the community, for the environment and for their workers and also good for business too. And you can do that, there, it's possible. But I wanted to work with companies who already understood that. Right. I didn't have to convince them that the financial method is, is um, there's other ways to look at it. I just wanted to go work with the B corporations and nonprofits and these organizations that I, I know that already have that mindset and help them be successful.
0: I mean, it's, I I guess, yeah, have you seen, I mean, I feel like so many big companies now, like, I mean, there's like Loop with uh, Procter & Gamble. I mean, that's a huge shift also. Um, You really do see, I mean, I feel like now I'm seeing so many companies that are trying to, you know, say, you know, this is plastic free and this is, you know, um, I I think there is definitely a shift. As a consultant, have you seen more companies that are reaching out to you because it just seems like that's the way customers are starting to. More i think
1: definitely the businesses are growing and that is exciting because that means that's more people i could go help and work with some companies that reached out i had i didn't know what they do so i'm learning and wow. and um you know oh i had no idea there's a whole business wrapped around this it's very interesting even renewal workshop i knew about them through uh i think the master recycling yeah. recyclers class um but yeah and then having opportunity to go work with businesses like that really cool um As far as the, but it's still new for them on the process improvement stuff, because a lot of them don't come out of, they came out from mission driven purpose, same with the nonprofits, they didn't set up the nonprofit with maybe a business background, they set it up for a passion around the problem. And so, um, whereas in a larger company, you have a lot of people with engineering degrees, and they would have been exposed to some of these methods and techniques, perhaps in school. Or they take an MBA program because that's how you move up in the company. And so right. they're exposed to it through the MBA programs that they go through. Um, but a lot of the organizations that I'm reaching out to, they come up through a different channel, which is great, but they don't necessarily have the same business background as some of the larger companies that, you know, that traditionally would ask for this kind of help in process improvement.
0: I feel like I am way more familiar with mission driven businesses. I didn't know that they were those are like two different things, you know?
1: In general, I would say, I mean, there's definitely people who worked in a big company with all that background and then just said, I don't want to do this and I want to do something different. Mm -hmm. But I would say there's a lot that got into the business and it was just kind of by accident i started you know i think tofurkey was like that they started off as just i'm just making some tempeh i didn't know this is going to turn into a billion dollar company <laughs> in fact they the story seems like they barely made it many wow. times they struggled and now they're a huge company so and were
0: they so are is that mission driven or is that yeah
1: i think okay. it was like just filling a void and trying yeah. to uh, come up with something to bring in a you know make some money for a job and you stick with it long enough and all of a sudden you you, you help change a movement around vegan food and the company's worth billions of dollars. And it's just, uh, I don't think that was the goal going into it. I'm going to build this billion dollar company. So I think that's some of it as it comes out of that passion for a problem or an issue, not so much of uh, how do I build a business that I can sell or get, uh, get an <laughs> IPO around or, and then make right. a lot of money, which, right. um, maybe a lot of companies start that way.
0: Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, so okay. If I if I was um, listening and I was just starting a mission driven business, what would what advice would you have for them?
1: Um, I would say start with the s- simplest, smallest solution you can provide to a customer and get it in front of them and get feedback on yeah. that idea. Um, don't invest in a huge amount of stuff or things or items or infrastructure. Find your customers or find the people you want want to work with and just figure out what problems they have and then then try to figure out if your solution can help them or not or change and modify your solution. So, um, and it's still kind of where I'm at too is I'm I'm working with these organizations and saying, this is what I offer, but maybe that's not what they need. Maybe they're not ready for my help or maybe um, I need to approach it differently or there's parts of my consulting I need to, Shift directions are where depending on where they're at in their maturity or knowledge level. So, I think being very flexible starting off, but getting in front of the people that you want to work with and help uh, and not locking into a solution of how you're going to help them. Um, so, there's a methodology called Lean Startup that is geared around that is how to give, you know, provide a minimum viable product and test it out low scale, low risk, get feedback, and then adjust as you get that feedback from the people who actually might pay or want that product or service you're offering. So I think that's, that'd be one thing. So you don't go in saying here, I got this great idea and I'm going to throw all this money or effort or time into it and find out later, oh, there's nobody that wants what I have to offer because I didn't really understand my customers. So I'd say, look into that methodology. If you're just starting off, cause I think it'll give you some really good ideas around, um, Testing your ideas yeah. first.
0: Yeah, there's a there's a term um, and. Ex- excuse my cussing, there's a ship the shit, um, which is something that people talk about in the product design world is that you got to ship it as soon as possible. Yep. You know, even if it's crap, you know, just get it out there, get yep. feedback from people. Because I think that a lot of the time, um, I've seen it actually happen a lot where somebody would be very wrapped up in their idea and their business and they'll be like, it needs this and it needs to be perfect and it's got to be X, Y, and Z and it's it's got to be this sort of look and they dive so much time and money and um, sort of like, investment into it and nobody's even seen it. You know, there's nobody there that's Mm -hmm. even like going to give feedback and you're not going to even know like, oh, wow, that didn't, I'm not, you know, something that was so clear to you may not even translate for your customer or there might not be a large enough audience that even wants that product. So, um, I think that's, that's, that's really good advice for somebody who's starting up. um,
1: I think the, like the food carts and the pop-up shops, I think that's a perfect example of, You have something to offer. Don't invest in a a building and put up a storefront, hire employees. And then in six months, you're completely out of all your life savings. And there's so much simpler ways you can go about that that will be less risky and get you to what you really want, which is helping usually that customer or some mission. And it doesn't have to, it may change your solution, but you're still going to achieve your mission or your goal, especially if you're mission driven. It's the solution may change, but your your vision won't change. But it may be different than what you originally thought it would be. So if you stay focused on what the end result you're trying to achieve is, um, then you can be flexible of what your solution ends up looking like. Don't get don't get so wrapped up in that solution that you won't give up that idea when you hear that the feedback is telling you to go in a different direction.
0: So you think pop-up chops are and food trucks. It's are.
1: a way to test out on a lower cost scale. And maybe even before the food cart there's simpler ways to just, you know, have a free dinner and give out food and and ask for feedback, modify and change it. Would you pay $5 for this? Would you pay $10 for this? And that feedback is hard to to ask cuz it's you're going to find out very quickly <laughs> if your solution is going to work. And it's scary exactly. for people. It's yeah. like, I don't want to know. It's, it's too scary if they don't yeah. like it. What do I do? <laughs> but if you say like, okay, just, it may change, but if you end up helping that uh, achieve that mission, isn't that what you got in this for? So have that flexibility. Don't get uh, t- tied down to that solution.
0: Cause yeah. Cause then people can get so wrapped up with that one thing and once they get feedback and it's completely shut down, it's <laughs> just like, oh my gosh, I spent like two years working on this and I finally got feedback nice. and now I realize, oh shoot, like I should have adjusted this. So, and, and what you're saying is have a lot of flexibility when you're starting a business and be open that to the sort of critique and feedback that you're receiving. I guess here, here's one question is, um, I think I find this too, is that, you know, like also who you're getting um uh, sort of feedback from because I feel like there sometimes it's important to listen to, um, you know, especially as somebody who's a consultant, like listen to what everybody has to say. But is there kind of a like a filter that you advise for that too? Because sometimes, you know, you might not want to, that person might not be the best person for advice.
1: Right. Yeah. I would definitely uh, look at the person and what their background is mm-hmm. to just determine how much you should weigh their decision and maybe where they're coming from and. And definitely, uh, not all advice should be treated equally. So yeah, uh, and then sometimes you say, you know, I'm onto something. My gut says this is this is something I still want to go down. I'm, I'm hearing uh, some pushback, but. I really believe in this and there's a lot of successes that have happened for people pushing through on an idea that no one really thought would take off. You know, you have to keep that in mind too. If your, your heart is there and you said, all right, I'm going to give this a shot. I, I I understand. I'm listening to the feedback. I've heard it. I'm taking it into account, but I still believe in this, you know, trust your gut to some point too, as long as you're open to hearing the, the other feedback, at least you wow. go, don't go in there blindly and say, Oh I, yeah, I was ignoring that. Um, but, uh, so yeah, it's it's definitely taken it into account and then take it into account based on who's saying it right. for sure.
0: Yeah, actually um I I'm, I'm curious about I know you worked with a company um, Green Banana Paper. Um can you can you explain a little bit about that?
1: So as part of my sustainability training, we had to do a paper on or a presentation on one country that we pick and you doesn't you can pick any country you want, but you have to describe kind of the the situation of the company right now. What are their sustainability challenges that they have? and um i kept seeing in this drop down menu when you would select the state it would show up federated states of micronesia and i always thought like is this a joke did somebody put this like in there and it got stuck into one of the algorithms and then people have been copying pasting this u.s states drop down menu and this got left in there or something uh, one day i saw i was like i wonder what like i did a little research and like oh this is a whole island chain of Uh, um, it's one country, but it's thousands of islands spread out in the middle of the Pacific ocean that uh, is actually part of the U S kind of like a Puerto Rico. So they're not States, but they're like in an agreement or a compact with the U S and after world war two they were Japanese territory and we took over a lot of those islands. And um, so then I started, I said, well, maybe I'll pick this one as my country. And I started doing a little research and it's just, It's a very interesting place because it's, uh, they've kind of been left alone. Mm -hmm. I mean, the U S supports them financially and, um, beautiful islands that are still very, uh, remote, very remote. And, um, so it just really intrigued me. And I was like, I'd like to go there someday and really, uh, see what's going on, uh, Cause I like to travel and I was like, and I like traveling places that people don't like go to. I don't go to like the large. You're like my, my the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We went to Dominica in the Caribbean and oh. it's a very uh, green lush Island. And, oh. but no, not many people have been there. Okay. Uh, so stuff like that. Uh, so I was like, I'm going to go there someday. And so it, uh, I was going through like some Kickstarter or something like that. And I saw this wallet manufacturer that was, Making wallets out of Micronesia. I was like, "Oh, that's cool! Finally, like a business." Because I'd looked at like uh, Kiva, and um, I'm always looking for like interesting places to donate, and they never nothing ever came up in Micronesia. Because I would look for that to see if I could support. Because that was one of the things that they talked about uh, in my in my presentation was. They really need to build up their own economy Mm -hmm. because the funding from the U.S. is eventually going to go away. And it's always in turmoil whether that's going to last or not. Mm -hmm. It's millions of dollars a year, hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I'm sure it's always on the table for being cut at some point. So what they want to do is be self-sufficient. And so to do that, they need to build up their own economy. And so Mm -hmm. I was always looking for small businesses starting up that might – uh, want to help develop an economy for themselves where they could get off of you know, the um, having to rely on the US wow. um, and then kind of say, and we can do our own thing. We don't have to do what the US wants us to do. So I saw this uh, initiative and I'm like, oh, cool. I'll donate some money to this Kickstarter for it to help uh, this wallet manufacturer. So I got on their newsletter and I got a wallet and they, um, I'll show you. Again. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. This is a newer colony version because um,
1: I got one for, sorry. Oh, wow. So this is a newer version of it, but it's uh, made out of banana fibers. Wow. So when the banana trees die, so they have a bunch of coconut and banana trees on the island. And when they die, they just kind of sit and rot. And sometimes the farmers will burn them mm-hmm. just to clear the space so they can grow more trees. Whoa. And so there was just kind of waste. I mean, they eventually will compost, but usually they'll burn them to not wait around for that to happen. Wow. So he, uh, this guy, Matt Simpson, he was from the U S he went over and did some teaching work, volunteer teaching work, um, fell in love with the islands. And, uh, I think he got a job in Kosh Rai, which is one of the Micronesian islands. Mm-hmm. And he saw this business opportunity that, you know, he was doing all this research on how to make what you can do with different fibers. And he's like, they have this plethora of materials and they need some business. There was very few businesses on the Island. They rely a lot on the government. So he started figuring out how to operate and build this factory. And he made this little facility that makes wallets. So in his newsletters that came out, he said, Hey, we're looking for volunteers to come and help us. If you have skills or knowledge or And he was kind of looking for, I think, social media and marketing and things like that, and I threw out the idea. I can provide some training if you're interested in that. I'd love, you know, I I need an excuse to go to Micronesia. I've been wanting to go there and, and I'm I'm a a consultant now, so I have flexibility to block off extended amounts of weeks. I would never be able to do this before, but now I can block off a month or so if I want to do this. And he's like, sure, actually. I'm kind of learning this on the fly. I could really use some professional help on how to run a business. Wow. And so we made it figured out some dates. And so I went out for five weeks um, wow. and spent lived. So in part of this facility, he had, he built an apartment above the factory where he lives. And in the back is apartment for people who are visiting and helping out. There's not, a, there's like two hotels on the Island. Wow. So there's not a lot of places to stay, and wow. it's a, uh, expensive to do that if you're living in a or there for five weeks. And so my job is to just kind of look at their operations and give them some training on the Lean and Six Sigma methods and then work with him directly on coming up with more of a system on how he can better manage, yep. especially if he was going to be uh, traveling and doing a lot of marketing stuff and remote work. It was amazing.
0: How long ago was that?
1: This was in. I left in end of May this year, and then came back right after Fourth of July. So it was about five or six weeks total with travel, and um, you know it was really cool. It was just so people describe it as Hawaii fifty to hundred years ago, in terms of the lack of development. There's not high rises. It's pretty simple living. um, Beautiful weather. Beautiful scenery. Just. Yeah, it was awesome. Um, People are wonderful and they're excited about this business and trying to build something and they got some spending money and they can, um, they like to see their product being sold all over the world and knowing it comes from their island, they have a lot of pride in that. And so, and he's just trying to get you know this business going and and turning into success. So I had really high expectations going in, and it really met all those expectations. So it was cool. just a really amazing experience.
0: Yeah, it'll be cool to see uh, after doing the consulting with them too to see how it kind of um, develops over time.
1: Yeah, and I'm hoping to send other people there to help continue with that work. You know, I'd like to go back and help again. Uh, I don't know how quickly I can get back over there, but um, I made a connection at when I was there with uh, someone who worked in Ohio, who is in a healthcare organization, they have a lean and six Sigma department. They had some people who might be interested in traveling over there, um, to kind of continue some of the work that I started. Um, Oh, so, um, so the cool part is he's trying to make it, fully sustainable. It's a vegan product. It's zero, He's trying to hit zero waste. Not only is this a cool experience, but you're exactly the type of businesses I want to succeed and help and work with. And so we did some stuff on productivity of some of the sewing operations and looked at some data. And I was collecting data each shift and kind of recording, seeing who was doing well and who was struggling with some of the different types of wallets, looking at some of the quality criteria and making sure that was clear and consistent. Um, setting up Kanban or pole systems so that they weren't ordering too much of supplies. You know, they have a challenge that it takes a couple of weeks to, for material to get to them because it's so remote. Um, like I said, most people have never heard of Micronesia and let alone the island of kosrai It's just a really unique place to go and visit. And, so uh. So yeah, that was a really awesome experience that I never would have gotten if I wasn't doing consulting. I was about to
0: say, like, it's so incredible that your consulting job has such, um, kind of like flexibility and you kind of really can, um, go from different places and meet really interesting businesses too. And, um, I think that's really cool that you transitioned into that. Um, so we're wrapping up on our, on our, um, (laughs) can
1: I add one more thing? Yes, please do. Uh, I I did that for free. So I covered my travel and my time there. Um, but and I got paid in wallets, which is nice (laughs) for a little bit of my help. Um, but what really kind of, I had to take a step back when I started consulting, I really got wrapped up initially of how much money was I bringing in? Mm -hmm. And I caught myself being so focused on, am I making as much as I used to make? And then when I stepped back and said, what am I, what is my goal here? And it's it's to stay busy enough that I can pay my bills and stuff like that. But these experiences are really valuable. And so initially when people ask me how business is going, I would say, it's going okay. You know, I could be busier, but now as I'm starting to think about it, it's like, it's going awesome because I get to do what I want and, uh, I get to work on awesome projects and help great people. And even if I, and I don't want to work all the time, I don't want to work 50 hours, 60 hours a week. I mean, if the needs are great, but, um, my measure of my own success was still jaded to the old system of how much money am I bringing in and what's my salary this year. And I had to force myself to, you know, think through that that's not really what my goal is here. So that was a really mental shift. I've had to make myself, even though that's supposed to be helping businesses with triple bottom line. I was still thinking about it the old way of just how much client work do I have? And so that's really helped me kind of step back and say, this is, Going great because I get to have that flexibility and work with the groups I work with. Whether I'm super busy or not busy at all, it's it's a different way of measuring my own success of my consulting business. So that's I mean, helped.
0: Wow, I think I think a lot of listeners will re- like will relate to that. You know, defining what your version of success is too, because I think everybody's is different. You know, some people it's profit. You know, like how much they make, and some people it's you know like the experiences that you have, which is kind of you know like. I mean, isn't it better to lead the life that you want to live, you know, than just, if you're pay, you know, just going the day to day just saying it pays, but what do you, what are you paying mm-hmm. for? You know, so.
1: that experience was literally priceless. I mean, I couldn't wow. put a number to it and, um, yeah, it'll be something I'll always remember and, and hope to go back at some point. But yeah, so you can't put that on a spreadsheet no. and <laughs> measure that you
0: can't at all. Well, um. Brian, one last um, comment. Thank you for, thank you for adding that. Um, What is one piece of advice that you have for a starting ecopreneur?
1: Um, I think kind of along that same lines, I would give, and I've kind of been reinforced to this following like Gary Vaynerchuk uh, about just give away what you know and, and help people. And it's a longer strategy, but it just feels better. And I don't feel like I'm very good at marketing myself or selling what I offer, but I'm happy to, to put in time and effort into things. So, you know, just early starting off, I just made stuff and put it out there and tried to do as much free stuff as possible uh, just to get out there. And eventually, you know, things come back and it's the connections I made with some of the volunteer work that's led to some client work and sometimes to the people I was volunteering with, they've said, Hey, we got some money. Well, we can actually pay you this time. And that was a surprise. And I didn't expect that or think that would be a possibility. So I would say just help people with whatever skills you have and be useful. And then we can work out the money and stuff later, but, and it may never come, but I think it's just easier to just be present and be helpful and try to, uh, you know, figure out how you can Um, make a difference. And some of that will be good for business and other it will be free work, but uh, it'll all kind of pay off in the end, I think. Um, And uh, it feels good. Uh, And you meet great people because they're also there probably helping and volunteering and stuff. And so it kind of goes back to this, you know, what's the end result and what is success. And so I guess I would say just try to be helpful to people and the rest will take care of itself in the long run.
0: Totally. I think, um, one thing that I, uh, I can't remember which actor this was, but there's this saying, which is, uh, pay attention versus crave attention. Um, so pay attention as in, you know, um, help other people do be engaged with the work that you like to do. Don't, don't crave, you know, trying to get in front of something or, you know, seeing how many followers you have or who's listening. It's just the more that you just create the Good quality content and the work that you love to do. Just by doing that, we'll, we'll start growing to give to people. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on the yeah, podcast. Yeah. Hey, entrepreneurs. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, come on over and join me at The Zero Waste Habit. I'd love to hear your story and what positive impacts you're making in the world. Anyways, I hope you're having an awesome day and I hope to see you in the next episode.